0: You're,
1: You're listening, listening
0: to, to the Mumbrella Cast. The Umbrella
1: Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis, and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing this week is Deputy Managing Editor Brittany Rigby. Hello. And reporter Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to Lucian's Chris Maxwell and Andy Gibson about whether momentum is really building up around in-housing. We know there's, a,
2: there's, there's, there's something better we can do, there's a model we need to embrace, we just don't know how to do it. Attracting the top talent. Often these days, that creative talent is saying, hey, I'll come in-house, there's, there's no problem. And strengthening creative work. What I've seen happen is that muscle actually doesn't only benefit the in-house agency, it actually starts to benefit the agencies that are out of house as well.
3: But first, the week's topics. TV ratings are back with new programs, but who's started off the year on top? And the Super Bowl and Australian Open are advertising events, but what's different this year?
1: The TV ratings year has kicked off with a later than normal Australian Open taking centre stage in the official ratings period. This has created a huge knock-on effect amongst all of the networks, with seven debutant Holy Moly and 10's Amazing Race up against the tennis and nine juggernaut Maths pushed back on the slate. Brit, why is this year shaping up to be such a key year? We do say that every year, don't we? But this is genuinely different. It feels genuinely different.
3: Look, I think it's for a few reasons. I'm interested in, and the industry is certainly interested in, how viewer habits will actually shake out this year. So TV did really well last year during COVID, especially that news programming. It was unusual if news programming wasn't pulling above a million Metro viewers every night. When it's people as if we were...
1: weren't getting out of the house.
3: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you're completely right. People are at home, people were watching more TV. So how that will level out this year is definitely something that people are keeping an eye on. Of course, you know, the elephant in the year that is 2020 is the Olympics uncertainty still. So we'll get to that a little bit later, but seven's confident but the market less so, I would say. And then kind of bigger than that is obviously COVID, which is the reason why the Olympics is uncertain, but is also shaping a lot of TV decisions. So there's been a lot of pre-filming, a lot of safeguarding against the impact COVID had on production last year. And from what I've heard from network executives, basically all three, so seven, nine and 10, all have the first half, pretty locked in pretty safe and I mean finally you know what's going to happen to ad spend this year we've seen some recovery so far it's really important that tv is delivering what it's promised when it comes to the the viewers that it that it's pulling so I think all of those reasons are reasons why this year is a particularly fun one and interesting one to watch
1: I've got it going around in my head now around and around since you said seven is confident That is a massive, massive elephant in the room to be still figuring out whether the Olympics is going to take place this year or not. Does Seven have a backup plan? Surely they do. You've you've just said they're
3: confident. Look, they do have a backup plan, according to Chief Revenue Officer Kurt Burnett, who I chatted to late last week, and that piece ran earlier this week. It's interesting because this time last year or a little bit later than than where we are now last year, James Warburton was very, very confident that Tokyo 2020 was going ahead. And the media message was still very much, it's going ahead. So I think Seven is cautious about being too bullish. I mean, Kurt said to me, and this is paraphrasing, he said, we're not keeping our head in the sand. you know, We're chatting to the International Olympics Committee every 48 hours, everything that we've heard so far says this is going ahead. So they do have a contingency plan. I asked that outright. Do you have a backup plan? They're not banking on using it or they're not hoping to use it. And I think their approach of, you know, complete confidence or as much confidence as what they can get and as much confidence as they can project is kind of a little bit at odds with where the market is sitting about the the Olympics because, you know, we see here in Australia, in Melbourne, you know, where things are relatively under control versus the rest of the world, the difficulties that we had with getting the Australian open up. Cricket Australia's South Africa tour was recently cancelled. And think about the scale of those events versus something like the Olympics, the scale of travel, of logistics, of risk, It feels like getting the Olympics to go ahead would be, you know, not a minor but a pretty major miracle, but seven's confident.
1: Not just seven, but other players, nine and ten, have also made brief statements about what happens with the Olympics. It's interesting to read that nine had said that cancellation or postponement of the Olympics would mean a significant shift for it. Why would that be? And has ten said anything?
3: I think Nine saying that they will change their strategy is just a reflection of where they are in the market. They're the biggest competitor when it comes to you know, going up against the Olympics and up against Seven. Seven's hoping that the Olympics completely dethrones Nine from a ratings perspective this year. Nine's ho- hoping to hold on to that crown, which they've held on to for the past couple of years. So, Ten has said, you know, we're sticking with our slate regardless. We offer an alternative to sport. Nothing will change. As Seven's biggest competitor, it makes sense for Nine to say, we'll adjust, we'll see what happens and we'll program accordingly. So I think it's just a reflection of where Nine and Ten sit in the market.
1: And now you mentioned the Australian Open, of course, we definitely couldn't go without speaking about the the first Grand Slam of the year, which has kicked off a little bit later than usual uh, in Melbourne. Now, the crowd attendance was the big talking point early on with it being Rather lacklustre is probably the polite way of putting it. But uh, how has that played out for Nine? Are the viewer patterns a bit better than what we're seeing in terms of physical uh, attendance? Uh, And how has it sort of played out in having the tennis as part of the rating season now?
3: Yeah, well, I asked Nine how they felt about having the tennis as part of the ratings year, because as you say, usually it isn't. Interestingly, you know, I think we're still figuring out how it will rate overall and how it will go. I think the important thing to keep in mind though is that, you know, there's going to be matches or sessions that go far, far better than others, and so comparing it day to day is a little bit tricky. So for example, it started on Monday night and it had 486,000 metro viewers across all of the night matches. Last year that figure was six thirty-four thousand, so that's quite a drop. But Oztam this week has changed to how they're coding the tennis. So it's now going to be in sessions like the Cricket is, for example. And what that means is that you know it's not really fair to compare the average audience across a very long night of tennis to you know its primetime competitors at 7:30 pm, which only run for an hour or an hour and a half. So on that basis, if we're looking at the sessions and the matches specifically, last night the Kyrgios match had 690,000 Metro viewers, and the latter part of that game uh, after prime time, so from 9pm to 10.30pm, did the best, and that was obviously as that match was getting more exciting. And then the night before, the Ash Barty match had 646,000 Metro viewers, so Look, I think it will be interesting, particularly as we get to those bigger games towards the end of the tournament, how it rates. And then I'd also say something I've noticed this week, particularly, is that ratings figures across the board have tended to be quite low this week. So, you know, the shows that have been winning that primetime slot on some nights have been sitting in that 500,000s range on a metro basis. So, I do think it's been a weird week for ratings. I'm not quite sure why that is and why those figures have been low, but I think we'll get a good understanding of how the tennis has gone once we get towards the end of it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And that Kyrgios match that you mentioned was uh, a great example, you know, a couple of match points that he saved. I'm sure the interest in his next one will be quite high depending on the timing of that, uh, that session. And obviously the deeper the Australians go, the more interest there's going to be as well. So It'll be interesting to follow that and see how that plays out. Also of interest, though, there's more sport. Holy moly, which was one of the big talking points uh, during the, what do you want to call it, the the TV ratings off-season perhaps, and obviously into last year as well when we talked about it a fair bit. It is finally on screen, and it's up against Amazing Race. How has that sort of played out so far? I hope far better than my five-year-old's first attempt at uh, mini golf, which was horrendous, but the less said about that, the better. How are these two playing out?
3: Look, it's been an interesting couple of weeks, and holy moly has been at the center of all of that. So it's launched it incredibly well. It launched to 983,000 metro viewers, so really pushing that million mark. And I think, you know, that was purely or, or not purely but you know, in part due to curiosity. We always are interested in the first couple of nights of new shows and that's why people tune in. The Amazing Race, on the other hand, which is obviously a tested format here, it's a domestic version of that show because I couldn't travel internationally, that had 501,000 on the same night and both of those were up against the maths, uh, the second part of that special reunion series that Nine ran. So this week, interestingly, the amazing race has jumped ahead of Holy Molly, and Holy Molly was also beaten by sixty minutes on Sunday night on nine. Nine was originally supposed to air that second part of the math special on Sunday, but they brought it to the previous Monday so that those two episodes would run on consecutive nights, which did make sense. So it's been it's been a kind of very steady decline for Holy Molly so far. I know that media buyers have been interested in. How it's going across the whole season? It's not a very long series, but it was one that Seven was very, very, very keen to promote. You know, there was a lot of advertising for it in the lead up to its launch, and the Amazing Race, meanwhile, you know, launched to not great figures, has stuck around that mark since. But a week later, is now you know beating Holy Moly. So yeah, we'll. I'll be. I'll be very interested to see where Holy Moly finishes.
1: And, of course, none of this really makes much difference uh, unless it gets the media buyers interested and the partnerships kick off. So very quickly, Britt, what have you heard in terms of feedback from some of the players within the the media buying industry?
3: As I just said, buyers were really keen to see how Holy Molly did. It was one that they were really interested in after it was first announced at the upfronts, which was a long time ago now. And then it couldn't go ahead for a while. It went to film in the US. It couldn't finish filming there. They came back. They built a new course. So the ratings there people are definitely keeping an eye on. I know that I was I one thing that stuck out to me on LinkedIn actually from last week was a post that Ben Shepherd made. And we know that Ben Shepherd is never too shy about giving his opinion. And I'll read it out in full. It's not very long. He said, TV programming is a tough business at the moment. Audiences have changed and continue too quickly and can move off a program at speed. Holy Moly is an example. Launches Monday at 983,000 metro, drops 25% the next day to 737,000, and then Wednesday 543,000 and out of the top 10. That's 45% of audience gone in two days. Networks should be applauded for trying new things, but it's harder than ever to land a hit when you're competing with a world of content. So, look, he's not shy about saying what he thinks about the holy moly decline. Obviously, buyers are very interested to see whether or not the Olympics goes ahead, and that changes a lot of things in terms of investment. And then they'll also be keeping an eye on, you know, the new formats that are to come across the year from a range of the networks, whether or not that's, you know, making it on 10, whether or not that's seven's first season of The Voice, whether that's, you know, Beauty and the Geek or Celebrity Apprentice on 9. So there's a lot more still to come.
1: On Monday, Australians got to watch Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defeat the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, while they were also able to settle in uh, to the first Grand Slam of the year in the tennis with the Australian Open, kicking off in Melbourne after the trials and tribulations of player quarantine. These big sporting events kicked off the creative season with some big work and big spends from various brands, so it's been a huge week for creative work. But, first of all, we've just uh, we're still going through the global pandemic, which has affected the spends of many large businesses. Uh, how has this played out in terms of creativity and what we're seeing around these big sporting events?
0: Yeah, so looking at the Super Bowl first, one of the most significant couple of the most significant changes is um, Coca-Cola didn't didn't advertise during the game. It couldn't justify the $5 million price tag it takes to get a 30-second spot during the Super Bowl because of how its revenues were hit last year with the pandemic. I mean, Coca-Cola, it's not just what you buy at the supermarket. Um, with people staying at home, there was... Less sales through petrol stations, fast food, movie theatres, restaurants, bars, stadiums, like venues of any kind. On a similar front, Pepsi, its main competitor, uh, they also didn't run an ad this year, but it was still the main sponsor of the halftime show. Uh, Talking about the main sponsors of the Super Bowl as well, it was the first time since 1983 Budweiser didn't advertise during the game either. Announced in the lead up to the game, it was allocating its $1 million of advertising inventory to instead air a COVID-19 vaccination public service announcement, which was created by the Ad Council, which is one of the US industry bodies. However, its parent company, AB InBev, made its first ever master brand account for it as a company, which kind of had a bit of a mixed reaction In the market from people, I mean, sort of making a bit of a statement, allocating your time and money to a PSA, but then also making an ad for your own brand, kind of sort of left a confused message, I think, in a lot of people's minds. Although I've got to say, I didn't actually mind the master brand ad myself. We also saw a reduced appearance from the automotive sector as well for similar reasons due to revenues.
1: That's obviously left a bit of a hole uh, as well, Uh, a hole in one sense, an opportunity in another sense. Uh, Did we see some new brands, some new faces get involved?
0: Yeah, so we had Robin Hood, Klarna, Uber Eats, which was Australian made, and Fiverr. Robin Hood was an interesting one because it has come off the back of the GameStop madness, controversy, however you want to put it, particularly after they – prevented people from making trades with GameStop after some of those funds went bankrupt. In campaign review this week, our special for the Super Bowl, both Michael Walker and Joe Heath pretty much said that perhaps Robin Hood should have sat this one out in the heat of that controversy. Um, But all of the ads from these new players were very interesting. I mean, Fiverr... um, Made a bit of a joke about Four Seasons Total Landscaping, which, you know, we all have come to love as a business and an institution. And of course, Uber Eats. So made by Special Group Australia, revived Wayne's World and was also sending a message about uh, American consumers supporting their local restaurants.
1: Very cool ad from Uber Eats. I wonder how many more of those style uh, ads they can do because there's some great stuff uh, that that's happened so far. I'd love to see what they come up with next. But what has market opinion been uh, so far, Zoe? So how has the, the industry reacted to, to, to what they've seen?
0: I mean, look, there are a lot of brands who I think the consensus was just did you know, what's quite usual for them. M&Ms, they advertise every year with their living, breathing M&Ms. We also saw a lot of, you know, the standard Super Bowl ads. We expect to see big celebrity cameos, a lot of, not as many this year of the film remakes as last year. Um, Looking more broadly though, I think Michael Walker made a really interesting point that um, Nickelodeon's Super Bowl brand integration was his actual favorite piece of marketing during the Super Bowl. They had like the classic Nickelodeon slime, like appear across the touchdown line i think when whenever anyone scored and he said like it's fun it's a different way of doing things. And so it, he said it won the Super Bowl for him that year. And I think that's an interesting point when you look at both the Super Bowl and the tennis. I think now brands will be looking for more creative ways to uh, advertise during these sporting events. I mean, Uber Eats is one in Australia that I think is a really interesting case. I, I mean, 2019, the the Australian Open takeover the ads that appeared like the tennis had returned and tricked you. And it was actually an Uber Eats ad, but now they've had to continually innovate that concept. And so this year we have Sasha Baron Cohen as the strange umpire who keeps trying to keep the school to love. And, what this year's campaign involves is an integration of live social ads as well. So when the score is love during the games, you get codes for different restaurant partners. And that sort of brings me to another interesting point made by MKTG's Matt Connell earlier this week in a piece that um, my colleague Xander wrote about why Australia doesn't have a Super Bowl. And he said that, I think Australian brands would love nothing more than the ability to be as big and bold as what some of these US-based businesses can do around events like this. But it's about finding impactful ways to do so without the big budget and finding creative ways to do that. I think that is the key in Australia.
1: Coming up next is Chris Maxwell and Andy Gibson. Those names may be familiar to you because they are two of the senior industry leaders attached to the new business, Lucian. Is your team producing cutting-edge work do you have groundbreaking talent in your business? The PR and communications industry is extremely competitive, so make sure you enter the Mumbrella Comscon Awards for your chance to be recognised as the best in the business. First entries are due next month on March 19. To enter, go to Mumbrella.com.au forward slash Comscon Awards for more information. We've got two special guests here today in person, which is nice because we haven't done that for quite some time. Uh, We've got Chris Maxwell, who's started Lucian, uh, and also business partner in Lucian as well, beaming in all the way from the US, Andy Gibson. Thanks both for joining me on the Mumbrella cast.
4: Thanks very much, Damien, for having us. We're excited to talk to you.
1: Yeah, my, my my
2: pleasure. My pleasure, Damien. And I, I, I'm envious what I would give to actually be in person with someone right now.
1: <laughs> we, we will definitely have you here one day, Andy, yeah. one day. It's getting closer. Um, why don't you both explain to me what part of the Lucian you play? Uh, Chris, obviously you're the your founder. Uh, we might start with you first and then Andy, if you can give us a bit of a rundown as well of, of your part in, in Lucian. But, but Chris, what is Lucian? What part do you play in it? Sure, sure. So um, um, just
4: by way of background, um, I spent 13 years on the client side, most notably with Carlton United Breweries in Australia. And one of the things that I did while I was at Carlton United Breweries was I built a very successful in-house agency, an integrated agency across media, data, tech, um, creative and production. And in the last um, 12 months, um, I have gone out and launched a business called Lucian. And Lucian is taking that experience of having successfully built an in-house agency and tapping into this trend of more and more businesses and brands wanting to build in-house agencies. And so we've built Lucian as a marketing consultancy to help brands and businesses navigate the complexities of exactly that, of bringing um, media, um, creative production, data, and tech in-house closer to the business. So so in, in answer to the question of the um, what do we do, I'm the founder and the MD here in Australia and I lead the team and, and um, you know, work with all the clients here in Australia. And then I, I brought in some people who I respected really highly in the marketing space whose opinions that I wanted in the game when it came to building out what Lucian is and what clients need. And, and Andy's one of those people as well as um, that I've got a couple of other partners who you'd be aware of.
1: Andy, your CV is something quite impressive. Uh, Formerly, the holding CMO and and GM positions for, for the likes of Diageo, Cub, Walgreens, Boots Alliance, Bacardi. What role do you play in the Lucian business?
2: Yeah, thanks, Damien. I, I appreciate your thoughts on the CV. I've been lucky. I've been lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And one, one of my lucky uh, breaks was actually working with Chris Maxwell, Maxie as we call him, when I was the CMO over at CUB. And one of the things that had been, you know, on my mind for a long time is how do we just get better work more efficiently in a way that we're all contributing and enjoying what we do um, along the journey. And um, I was there at the start when when Chris was challenged and charged with putting the in-house agency model together at CUB. And I can remember thinking as the CMO, wow, I don't even know where I'd start. And that was quite scary. I knew some change had to happen, but it was like, where are we gonna start? I then moved on, went to some other jobs and um, watched with glee as Chris, with the help of some experts at SAB Miller at the time, actually implemented an in-house agency. And then I started to look at some of the product that was coming out of it. And I was thinking, that's the answer. That's, That's what's been on my mind for years And so I went off and, you know, did another couple of CMO roles and um, I I worked hybrid models whilst I was in those roles. But I was always thinking, Chris has now got the expertise to help people do what I believe a lot of people are wondering, how do we do this? What is the go forward? So when I got a call from Maxie uh, just over 12 months ago, where he was saying to me, hey, I'm thinking of stepping out. And I'm thinking I'm going to do what I did at CUB for others. What do you think? <laughs> I said yes. Let's dive on that because I believe there's a lot of marketing leads out there, a lot of business leads. Let's be clear out there who are saying we know there's a, there's 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 something better we can do. There's a model we need to embrace. We just don't know how to do it. When Maxi said he's going to do it, I thought no one better to uh, to to lead a charge there. And I, Damien, I merely I sit on the board. Um, I hope that I give uh, Maxi some good advice from time to time, but I'm always there for him. I'm always there to introduce him to new clients through my business here in the US. And I'm always there for him to ask questions and bounce stuff around, which I believe with some of the members of the, of the team that Chris has, Chris has assembled, I believe together we'll actually get better results for clients.
1: Now you've mentioned uh, other members of of the team uh, and like you you also mentioned, you know, I I know uh, well who they are. And I think a a lot of people in the industry will, but in case you don't uh, definitely check out the the Lucian website, it gives you a bit of a rundown of the people involved, but because we're a bit time limited, we won't go into all their CVs, but I hate assumed knowledge. I think it's a bit of a scourge in the industry. So let's not have assumed knowledge here. Let's go right to the basics. I think in housing, Let's define that because you can go back five, six, ten years when we're all talking about full service and there was still great debate over exactly what the hell full service was. So, Chris Maxwell, what the hell is in-housing? So, in-housing is simply bringing inside the organisation
4: capabilities, um, tasks and skills that would historically have been outside the organisation, whether that be... Um, media buying, media planning, um, whether that be creative and production, and
1: so it's not just creative because everyone seems to talk about it a lot in terms of creative. It, it's it is a lot more than that.
4: Absolutely, I mean it, it can be, and most most clients um, that we deal with they start with a creative studio. They kind of look around and say, hey, listen, I think it would be beneficial if we had some in-house designers, maybe an in-house copywriter, maybe an in-house production or AV person to help produce content more efficiently and more effectively. And and that's often the the entry point, but um, there's a lot more to it than that. And you can can kind of do that and and do very well out of that. But what we um, espouse is an integrated model that um, enables clients to bring together you know, those creative and production capabilities, as well as, you know, things like media and um, data and tech and digital um, together to give you a more um, integrated, faster, more agile kind of way of working.
1: I'm, I'm going to bring in something that, that Sir Martin Sorrell said, and uh, he, he said this to me in the background of M umbrella 360 last year, but I, I feel he runs on a bit of a, a, a play loop and, and everyone sort of heard this. He's been saying marketers are fighting to, to take back control, uh, that, that in housing is becoming popular when you need fast results and the ability to manage things 24 uh, 7. It kind of sounds like something every brand needs. Uh, so, how truthful is, is what he is suggesting, and why isn't everyone in housing? Andy, I might, being that you're the, the global sort of view here or the US view in, in particular, what's your sort of take on that? Look,
2: I, I I don't know that it is for everyone, and I would just say to people, you need to think about your situation. You know, are you getting what you need? Are you getting the best possible work that 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 you can possibly get in the most efficient manner that you can possibly get it out of your current model? Um, and if the answer to that is no, it's worth thinking about what models are available. You know, and and I right now, Damien, a, a number of my clients from startup. You know, direct to consumer um, wearables, right through to ho- big hospitality industries. Um, they're all either operating a full-blown in-house model because they're small, they're nimble, they actually like to control their their their, their end product, their output, or actually they're running a hybrid model where they're shooting you know, food and product shots internally with an internal agency, but they're still leaning on some, what I would call, you know, the bigger sort of networked agencies to do some of their more marquee work. I've in fact got very big clients who are running that model at the moment. Um, and, the, and the only thing I'd say is, you know, the question that you need to ask, is your marketing cutting through? Do you know who your consumer is? Is your work resonating with the consumer? And are you getting that work out in the most effective and efficient way that you possibly can? And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a point there that I just made. This isn't all about pulling cost out. This is about the best work in the most efficient way that you can. And if your answer to that is I'm not sure or no, I really think it's worthy of a conversation and, 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 some, and some, some thought processing around how do I do that? Because surely that's what we're all trying to do.
1: And what's uh, what have you seen in the market in the US at the moment, Andy? Is there a, a lot of move towards in housing, or a lot of interest? Uh, what gives you the confidence that that business model is is right at the moment?
2: It's a, it's a good question, Damien. But I, if I may, I'll, I'll just go back a, yeah. a little bit further because let let me go back ten years ago. Um, when, when I was a CMO in a company and I was looking at our output and I was thinking, you know, I'm just not satisfied. Um, w- w- what's the model? Where do I go? And actually, the model back then was fragmenting. There was companies who were still sticking with the big networks for sure. But then there was other businesses who were saying, you know what? It's not about the big network. It's about the best creative talent. Where do I find that? And I followed the latter. I wanted the best creative talent that I could find. And in many cases, not all, but many cases that took me to smaller, more independent shops where these creative people had gone, I've just had enough of that big network model right now. And so I'm gonna go do my own thing. So not in housing at the time, but really I was running a hybrid model back then because I was after the best creative talent. I've only seen that trend gather pace. And I've only seen that trend drive harder and harder into to cut through today. Geez, you better know who you're targeting. You better have some good skills. Then you better find the best creative talent to actually produce the work. And so what I'm seeing is loads and loads of clients chasing that path. I just want the best creative talent. And often these days, that creative talent is saying, hey, I'll come in house. There's there's no problem. Or I'll sit on a panel You can access me and I'll come and work for you, you know, without being in what I'm calling one of the big networks. So I'm just seeing the trend really, Damien, continuing to move in a direction and in housing is actually just now an alternative model to where the trend was going
4: anyway. And maybe just, sorry, that's a great explanation, Andy, and and maybe just to pick up on that thought of connecting up with the best creative talent that's the other part of Lucian's model that we haven't really talked about. So we talked about the in-housing and that's definitely a big part of why we're here. But the other part of it is this trend towards so much of the fantastic strategic, creative and production talent that's out there in the market is is now out there available on the independent marketplace, whether that's in small creative consultancies or freelancing or small agencies. And that's why we've brought um, we're working with a fellow named Nick Garrett, who again most of your listeners would know. Pretty much everyone would know. Nick, everyone one, would one, know. Of, one of the great um, creative leaders in in Australia. And he's um, c- come on as a partner with Lucian to help build out our panel of exceptional independent strategic creative and production talent. So that model that Andy's talking about, co- combining the speed and efficiency and effectiveness of in-house with the best talent you can get that's the model that we're building with Lucian, which has kind of the
1: best of both worlds baked into it. That's an interesting point, because I'd love to pick up on on, on sort of both those points as well in in terms of smaller shops with with big creative talent, obviously uh, business models like Lucian, uh, and of course the the big networks or the agencies within the networks, whether it's creative or, or media or whatever services that they're providing. It seems that now is probably one of the most competitive markets that we've seen in quite some time i mean uh just the other day howitz and white has started operating uh there's a a number of other agencies who have just sort of popped up uh whether it was because of COVID or not you can look at conrad spilver of Mm -hmm. course uh, uh, XISOVAR, some very good names in the market providing some very good uh, services you know obviously you're a big name from cub that people were looking at as well but How are you seeing that in terms of the competition you've got now in market in that marketers have arguably never had more choice in terms of where they go, what they do and how they do it? What's your take on how you're going to forge a pathway for for evolution? Sure.
4: So so I I think the first thing that everyone I've spoken to can agree on is there's never been a better time to start thinking about a new way, the the new models. Those legacy models, they're kind of they're tired, they're slow, they're expensive. How, how can you, as Andy said, be more efficient and effective with your work? Well, this is the time, especially with all of the disruption that marketers and businesses have gone through in the last twelve months. If you're not already thinking about how do I make sure that next year is. More effective more efficient better faster than you should be doing that now so that's kind of the first point is everyone should be thinking about it the point around lucian is we believe and having sort of done quite a bit of studying around the market we believe that the offering that we we offer is, is the most integrated um, model that's available so there are a number of different uh, partners popping up around the place that do specialist production or specialist meter etc but we're offering kind of an integrated solution across all of those, and also partnering up with this panel that we've built out gives you the um, creative choice and diversity that nobody can match. So you know we believe our models great, and we've designed it with the marketer in mind. You know that's why that's why Andy's involved, and that's why I'm involved. We've both got many many years of sitting on the side of the marketer, and this is a model that's designed by a marketer for marketers.
1: Um, we've talked a lot about speed uh in terms of that's the big benefit of going in-house. Uh, the ability to work almost in real time, pretty much, to to act very quickly. Uh, but surely there's got to be a bit more to it than that. And also, I guess on the other side, agencies would argue that they're getting faster. They get they're also putting people within some of their clients, and there's that ability for them to, to speed up as well. So Outside of that, what are the other benefits to going in-house and, and focusing on that as well? What should marketers be thinking of beyond the, the speed opportunity?
4: Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's a raft of different benefits and it really kind of depends on your business priorities, what you want to go after. But you know, we talked about the efficiencies that are capable of um, being driven here. It, it, it can't all be about that, but that, that is a benefit. Um, You know, obviously the speed, the agility, the the ability to turn things around, which means that you can be closer to your customers. You know, we've got examples, you know, in in clients and in my previous life of, you know, hearing from customers on Facebook and turning around a big piece of creative in 24 hours and getting it out the door really quickly, you know, whereas in the old model, that might've been days, if not weeks. Um, But, you know, there, there are integration benefits. So having greater ownership and control over your planning, your data, um, your creative process means that you know at the client you can deliver a more integrated plan, um, and that was a great um, benefit for us. And then probably the benefit that I was most pleased with and kind of surprised by when we built the model at CUB was the creative culture benefit that you get by bringing that shaped person inside your business. You know, and you know, we've. we've you know, I've come from a big corporate environment where kind of everyone sits on the marketing floor and wearing, you know, button down and car keys and feeling quite corporate. And then we made a really conscious choice to build out that in-house agency with creative types of people, you know, and, and those creative types of people, they bring a certain creative energy to the organization, which was infectious. And all of a sudden... That energy started to permeate outside that team that we built into the total marketing team, and then even into the total business. And it started to become the place people wanted to work and the place people wanted to be because um, of that kind of creative energy. So that's that's one of those benefits that you don't see written down too often, but you feel it when you when you've built it, and it's, it's it was hugely beneficial. And I think they're still sort of living off the benefit of that now.
1: I guess the the other big question is, is of course, the the working environment between client with in-house agency or considering in-house agency and the various agencies that might be on their roster. In some cases, uh, there are multiple agencies uh, across the roster. How does that uh, environment work? How does that sort of click together? And, and should agencies be looking at brands, looking at in-house and going, oh crap, or should they be thinking about it a different way? What's How's this all going to work?
4: I can, I can give you certainly my perspective and what we did again at CUB and some of our other clients is we say to the agency partners, the agencies that will win are the agencies that figure out the right ways to work with and complement the in-house agencies. If you fight against it, if it becomes a turf war, no one kind of wins out of that. It's a bad situation. But the agencies, this trend will continue. You know, if, if it's anything like in the United States, you know, roughly 80% of businesses and marketers in the United States have an in-house agency in some way, shape or form. That's going to continue. So the agencies that find ways to work with them and complement them and partner with them and add value where they can, they're the ones who will win it. And that's what we espouse with our, our model and all of our partners. This is not a either or, it has to be in-house or it has to be external. It's a both and and find ways to collaborate and work together. And that's that's what's gonna benefit for the client and the marketing organization that you're working with.
1: The,
2: the, the only little thing I'd add to that is over the years, um, I, I believe, and this is a cliche, but cliches are that because they're cliche. I believe that I've always got the work that I deserved. And when I've got um, work that's suboptimal, it's usually because I'm not working well with my agency. I've got a relationship problem. My briefs aren't good enough um, and I'm not being collaborative enough. When I've done work that I've been most proud of, generally speaking, I've got a fantastic relationship at all levels through the agency. I'm bringing them in to help me write briefs and the briefs are tight, really tight. And then the way we get from brief to actually finished product is very collaborative. Seen happen at in house. No choice, but that's how you've got to work when when you've got in it, because that's they're your work colleagues. And 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 those three factors of success: building great relationship, writing the brief together, and making sure it's tight. Then collaboratively working through the process actually becomes a muscle. And what I've seen happen is that muscle actually doesn't only benefit the in-house agency. It actually starts to benefit the agencies that are out of house as well, because it's now a way of working. It's in the muscle. And so I've actually seen it, Damien, be beneficial, you know, across the work, across the in-house team and across the the team that might not be in-house, because it just becomes how you operate.
1: We've got... uh... A couple more minutes left only, so I'd love to just direct the conversation very quickly to sort of the the build and HR side of things very quickly. Uh, in terms of uh, actually starting up an in-house agency, how long does that take if you're going from zero and and How easy or hard is it to find the right people to fill the the positions or are they already generally kind of there hanging in corners somewhere?
4: Well, so in terms of how long does it take? So we, we would often take our clients through a process that can be anywhere from kind of eight to 12 weeks process to sort of get in there and, and and do an audit and understand and build a strategy and a plan on, on what we want to do and where we want to focus and what capabilities we want to bring in. As we said before, it's not a one size fits all. Every client's different so you'll kind of you might some clients might want to bring in different different types of capabilities. And then once you've got the plan signed off you know what your strategy is, you've got a structure, you need to start going and filling that up with the right people. And that's the question around how easy is it to access them. Some people, some roles are, are easier than, than others. You know, you've got some roles, in particular, some of those really specialist technical roles that are in relatively high demand and short supply. And you know, we, we kind of spend a bit of time working with our clients on the right ways to attract the right kind of people. Um, what, what we hope to do, you know, over the course of this year and next year is, is open um. Talents eyes up to the benefits of working in in house agencies because we've got a lot of partners who have ex agency people, ex creative kind of types who have gone in house, and there's a huge benefit to that. And, and even if it's not a permanent thing, if you go over and spend a little bit of time working on the client side, you're only going to benefit from the proximity to the brand and the commercials of the business and the decision making. And and I've got this view that. You know, the more people that come from kind of external agencies, go and spend a bit of time working in an organisation with a brand. You know, whether it's in house, you can go back out after a couple of years. That's fine, but you've got that experience of having sat on the client side. And you know, I was an ex-agency guy. I think a lot of agency people like the idea of going and sitting on the client side and kind of being the one writing the briefs and kind of in in, in control of the budget. So there's that huge benefit of. Of doing that. So none of our clients have had too much trouble attracting talent, but it's really about how you tell the story and making sure that you've got the right organization, the right culture, the right ways of
1: working to attract the right kind of people. Fantastic. Uh, It's definitely going to be one of the stories that we pay quite a bit of attention to, I think, for the, the rest of the year, how Lucian goes, how it develops and how the the story of in housing develops as well but uh in the meantime chris maxwell andy gibson uh particularly andy all the way from the us and i think nursing a, a bit of uh sympathy for himself after the super Bowl results as well thank you so much for joining us on the mumbrella cast thank you Damien. thank you chris see you guys and that's it for this week but before we go mumbrella has recently launched the mumbrella sessions a regular small-scale catch-up at the Mumbrella offices in North Sydney, featuring key industry leaders. The first of the Mumbrella sessions focuses on leadership in a new business environment. Space is strictly limited to 20 people and tickets cost just $20. So be very, very quick and grab your seat today before they sell out. To purchase a ticket, head to umbrella.com.au and search for the Mumbrella session. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. See you next week
3: we <laughs>